This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, Russia's war on Ukraine has dominated headlines this year. John Kirby has provided the latest on the fighting and U.S. support from the Pentagon and the White House. He joins us to discuss what's happening now and how things have changed. Then, 2022 brought changes to the tech and cyber landscape. We cover the technology stories that most impacted federal operations. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. It has been a big year for the national security community, but we want to start with one of the most recent developments. Brittany Griner was released from Russian custody in exchange for Victor Boot, a Russian arms dealer who was serving a 25-year prison sentence for conspiring to kill Americans. John Kirby is the National Security Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the White House. John, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Good to be with you, Mimi. The exchange was a long time in coming. You first talked about it over the summer. Yes. What was the key to finally making it happen? It was a painstaking set of negotiations and work with our Russian interlocutors over the last few weeks and months. It really kind of uh, came to closure two weeks ago uh, when it was clear that the only deal that was possible in that moment was to trade Mr. Boot for Brittany Griner. Uh, the president made uh, that decision. It was not a decision he took lightly, made that decision uh, to go ahead and execute the deal. Uh, and then and then in and then recent days, you know, prior to that, or I'm sorry, subsequent to that, uh, we were able to work through the logistics with the Russians uh, to make the exchange. The administration has received a lot of criticism for leaving American Paul Whelan behind. How do you respond to that criticism? We want Paul home just as much as his family wants him home. And I can tell you that right up until the moment that the president decided to execute the deal, boot for Griner, we were still in that moment trying to see if we could maneuver a way to get Paul out too, to get both of them out. The problem, Mimi, is that the Russians treat Mr. Whalen differently. They levied some sham espionage charges against him. They put him in a different category than what they would consider other criminals. Uh, and so there just was no way to get both of them out for Mr. Boot. But over these last weeks and months, we've learned a lot about the Russian position. We've learned a lot about how specially they sort of categorize Mr. Whalen. So uh, that gives us context and information to try to pursue these negotiations, uh, uh, hopefully in a more fruitful way going forward. And those negotiations are ongoing. They want a spy for a spy. So do you have a Russian spy that you can give back? What I can tell you is we do not have uh, uh, in our hands uh, and in our ability right now, um, uh, the, the opportunity to provide an exchange that would be acceptable to the Russians right now. But as I said, we've learned a lot over the last few weeks and months. Uh, and that will help inform our, our process going forward. We'll do the best we can to, to get him home just as fast as we can. Victor Boot has been called the merchant of death. He's a free man now. Is he posing a threat to the security of Americans? Just like with any prisoner exchange, we do a national security assessment across the national security team uh, to, to assess uh, what the risks might be. That was done in this case. Uh, and I can tell you that we're comfortable that, uh, that we can manage whatever risk might 
evolve. I, I want to make a couple of points. He was not serving a life sentence. He was going to go free in 2029. So it's six years earlier, but he was going to be a free man. Number two, if he decides uh, when he gets back home that he wants to sort of ply his old trade again, uh, then the, the United States will be vigilant. We'll be watching for that. And we will not shy away from holding him accountable and protecting our national security interests. The State Department takes the lead on um, freeing detained Americans overseas. What is the national security's role in that? The, the chief interlocutor for us uh, was the special envoy for uh, hostage affairs, Mr. Roger Carstens, and he and his team did a fantastic job. They really drove uh, the deal going forward. But as you might imagine, there's a, a team behind the team, if you will, and the National Security Council was also involved in, in helping provide some context, provide some guidance, provide some assistance as, as needed. But it really was the special envoy's uh, job to do this, uh, and that's why we have a special envoy for hostage affairs. And Mr. Carson's, you know, obviously everybody's focused on uh, this particular exchange, rightly so, uh, but he's working on a number of others that we're trying to get, you know, we're trying to get released. I want to pivot now to Ukraine. You were at the Pentagon when Russia invaded Ukraine in February. The conventional wisdom at that point was Kyiv would fall in a matter of days. That didn't happen. When was it that you realized this is going to be a long fight? I don't know that there was one moment where we looked and said, oh, geez, we're in this thing for months. Uh, but you're right. A, a lot of people thought that, uh, that the Ukrainians would not be able to hold out for very long against an onslaught of uh, a vastly superior, at least in numbers, Russian troops, Russian forces that Mr. Putin had amassed along the border uh, all through last fall and early winter. Uh, and they surprised everybody. Certainly they surprised the Russians. Uh, and what we're focused on is making sure that they can continue to win back their territory and defend their sovereignty. Uh, I'll tell you this, uh, the, the, you know, the, the fact that the Ukrainians have done so well is absolutely a testament to their courage and bravery and their own skill, no question about it. But it is important to remember, not just the security assistance that they've received uh, before and after the invasion, but the training that the United States and the British and the Canadians and so many other of our NATO allies were providing since 2014. I mean, so that military really transformed into something completely different. It had been a very post-Soviet Russian-aligned sort of military. Uh, but after 2014, after the first Russian invasion in Ukraine, um, you know, Western nations really t took them uh, to the field and taught them different tactics, different procedures, different organizational uh, uh, capabilities that they are, they are executing to a fairly well on the battlefield now. A good example, uh, the Ukrainian army now has a non-commissioned officer corps which is something that they didn't have before, and the Russians still don't have. Uh, and they also have learned to delegate authority down the chain of command. So now you have relatively junior Ukrainian soldiers in the field making very big decisions and know that they have the backup from their chain of command to do that. It's given them more initiative, more speed, more agility. Uh, it's made a big difference. All right, John, stand by. We'll continue talking about Ukraine and some other stuff. <laughs> Straight ahead on Government Matters, we'll continue our conversation with John Kirby, the Strategic Communications Coordinator for the National Security Council. Stay with us.
I'm back with John Kirby. He's the National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the White House. John, Ukraine has been asking for long-range weapons for months. What's been the holdup? Why the piecemeal in, you know, giving certain types of weapons as this war unfolds? From the very beginning of the war, we have tried to match the kinds of capabilities that the Ukrainians need the most in the moment. Um, when the war first started, earlier we were talking about the Battle of Kyiv. What was really important was Javelin anti-tank missiles, because that's what the Russians were moving into Kyiv. Um, yes, there were airstrikes, but it was it was a ground mass artillery and armored movement. And so Javelin anti-tank missiles were really the need that they had. Uh, over time, that changed. When the fighting really started to pick up in the Donbass and in the south, uh, then artillery became uh, the key need by the Ukrainians, what we would call in the military long-range fires. So we sent in howitzers and we sent in these HIMARS, these, these, uh, uh, these uh, advanced uh, rocket systems, uh, highly mobile advanced rocket systems. And now you see that Mr. Putin has really shifted his whole focus to civilian infrastructure and civilian targets and the use of Iranian drones, which he did not have early in the war, and now cruise missiles, which he has used throughout the war. So air defense has become now sort of the, the chief need, the, the big requirement by the Ukrainian armed forces. And air defense is, it's important to remember, air, air defense is a layered uh, contextual sort of uh, defensive system. You need short range, you need medium range, and yes, you need some long range. And so we have been working with our allies and partners to provide a mix of air defense capabilities to the Ukrainians, commensurate with the needs that they have right now. War rarely ever stays the same, no matter where it is and under what circumstances. And so we want to make sure that we are trying to meet Ukrainian needs in near real time so that they can continue to succeed on the battlefield. And that requires changing the capabilities but that we provide But when you them. say succeeding on the battlefield, you're talking about defensive weapons. What about offensive weapons? Uh, well, these many of the weapons can be used for both purposes. Uh, uh, but uh, what we're focused on uh, broadly speaking, is making sure that Ukraine can succeed on the battlefield, that they can continue to regain and retain uh, their lost territory from the Russians uh, inside Ukraine. We want to make sure that, that their sovereignty can be defended and, and protected and won back. And that's, that's the focus of the assistance we're giving them. You mentioned the attacks, the Russian attacks on civilian infrastructure. A lot of energy infrastructure has gone down and it's winter time. How can the U.S. support Ukraine through this time? We are working very hard to do exactly that. The Secretary of State announced a few weeks ago uh, more than $50 billion worth of assistance uh, that, I'm sorry, $50 million worth of assistance that, uh, uh, that can help uh, rebuild some of their energy infrastructure, some equipment, technical assistance, and that kind of thing. Um, and we are already delivering a lot of that material uh, into Ukraine. And it's not just us, maybe, it's other nations that are doing the same thing, that they are providing uh, equipment, infrastructure, uh, transformers, uh, and again, trying to help connect Ukraine to grids outside Ukraine to keep the lights on, to keep the water running. It's gonna be a long, cold winter. This is Mr. Putin's attempt to bring the Ukrainian people to their knees. He's, as the Secretary General of NATO quite, I think, aptly put it, he's, he's weaponizing winter. Uh, and so we're doing everything we can, not only to get equipment to Ukraine, uh, but to, to, to make sure our allies and partners who may have equipment that is better suited to the Ukrainian network to get that in there. But also back to your earlier question about air defense. It's not just enough to give them the equipment because 
it could still come under attack by the Russians. We got to make sure that they can defend against those attacks. I want to ask you about China. Um, in competing with China, the national security strategy says that we're at an inflection point, and, and that quote, the next 10 years will be the decisive decade. What needs to happen during this decisive decade that we're not doing right now? Well, we are doing a lot, quite frankly, because we recognize that it is a decisive decade. We recognize that uh, the growing uh, influence that China is trying to exude, not just in the Indo-Pacific, but around the world, Africa, Latin America, Middle East. Uh, we are working, number one, to revitalize our vast network of alliances and partnerships. That is something the Chinese don't have, and they know they don't have. They don't have the network of allies and partners that we do. Uh, and we are putting a lot of energy. President Biden has really put a, a, a focus, uh, a priority, on making sure that we work with allies and partners, that we listen to allies and partners, and that we contribute more capabilities to those allies and partners. If you look at the national defense strategy that the Pentagon just put out and the national security strategy that President Biden just put out, you'll see there is a very keen focus uh, on the China challenge. Uh, we wanna make sure, we're calling it a strategic competition, that we can compete economically, certainly, but yes, actually, absolutely from a security perspective. And so we're putting more capabilities in the Indo-Pacific, we're revitalizing allies and partnerships. We've recently held uh, uh, an Africa Leaders Summit in Washington, D.C., more, more than almost 50 heads of state from the continent uh, here to meet with the, the president. China was on the agenda, absolutely, and the challenge that China poses on the continent. So we're working across the spectrum of, of military uh, and diplomatic and political and economic capabilities. I want to ask you about what surprised you the most about how 2022 actually played out. You know, it's, it, you know, anytime you start a year, and we're about to start a new one, uh, you, you, it's difficult to, to know uh, what you're going to end up facing. Uh, I think uh, 22 uh, certainly presented many national security challenges, but also a whole heck of a lot of national security opportunities. Um, you look at uh, just what was on the president's agenda over the course of the last year, you know, uh, an ASEAN summit that he hosted, uh, going to the G7 and laying out a program for investment around the world, um, the G20 in, in Bali, the, the bilateral meeting he had with President Xi, uh, coming back here to Washington, D.C., holding an Africa Leader Summit. I mean, if you just look at 2022, what I think you'll see is this president and this administration really prioritizing the United States footing, United States leadership, on the world stage. All right, John, thanks so much for being on the program. My pleasure, thank you. We'll be right back with more Government Matters straight ahead. Here to discuss the biggest federal tech and cyber news of 2022 and the issues to watch in 2023 are Jill Ituro, Senior Vice President of Content Strategy for Cyber Risk Alliance, and Ross Wilkers, Senior Staff Reporter at Washington Technology. Welcome to both of you. Jill, I want to start with you. Okay. We'll start with cybersecurity. How would you say that the war in Ukraine influenced cyber efforts in the U.S.? Um, Ukraine was interesting because it really demonstrated how potential cyber warfare evolves. You know, we did have Cyber Command involved in the sense that they've talked a lot about um, efforts that led up to the Russian invasion, where they partnered with Ukraine, 
um, and help them develop their skill sets. Even did like pen, pen testing with them, a degree of tabletop exer exercises there. Um, which contributed to Ukraine's ability to respond. But what really for the U.S. was interesting was the degree of threat intelligence sharing that went on from the U.S. to Ukraine to allies, which was pretty critical. But you did also see ransomware gangs and cyber criminals kind of jump on the bad wagon and target the allies targeting Ukraine. So it showed how expansive cyber warfare will ultimately be uh, moving forward. And, and Ross, what developments have you seen in cybersecurity compliance over the course of 2022? It's slow ball has been moving forward towards this four-letter acronym called CMMC that's caused more fear and loathing in the tech industry than a lot of others to get more visibility into where companies are buying software and products given that a lot of technology in the world has been made in China and the U.S. government is paying closer attention to that. So how are federal contractors doing in meeting compliance requirements? We will find out next year when a final rule comes out from the White House. There have been various draft iterations trying to tell everybody in the public sector ecosystem, you've got to get ready, this visibility, this regulation is coming. So between the first half of next year, we'll see it. And those that are not ready, they're just going to be left behind. Well, Jill, speaking of the White House, the Biden administration issued a number of cyber regulations. Um, what are some of the big ones? Uh, so there was quite a bit that was focused on the critical infrastructure. You have to remember that Biden administration kicked off right after uh, solar winds or during solar winds I should say during the Microsoft Exchange server vulnerability and then soon after Colonial Pipeline. So you initially saw quite a bit at, that focused on securing the critical infrastructure organizations um, across the United States. But then it did also transition because of supply chain attacks um, among other uh, vulnerabilities that were exposed through those various um, situations that evolved over the year uh, to focus on zero trust and uh, the federal agencies locking down their own infrastructure, but also that trickle down impact that can extend to private sector companies and a lot of focus on collaboration and partnership. I think we saw in SolarWinds a real lack of collaboration, um, or at least it was a bit delayed in the need for public and private sector to work together to address some of these issues. So that has also been a significant focus moving forward. And where are agencies in implementing those regulations, especially Zero Trust? Yeah, Zero Trust was a tricky one because it did have quite a laundry list in terms of locking down the system. In theory, agencies should have been moving along in the right direction already, but um, there's still quite a ways to go and it really does depend on the agency. You have some of the larger agencies that are uh, further along, I would say, because they already had been on that road. And a lot of the smaller agencies that really um, still are looking for support, often from the larger agencies, to get where they need to go. So this is gonna be really a focus throughout 2023, I would say. And Ross, uh, Jill mentioned supply chain. A big issue was the chip shortage in 2022. What's going on with that? Computer chips go in cars, they go in IT systems, they go in weapon systems, they go in everything that's important in the world. And there just was, has not been enough of them to go around in the world. And too few of them come from these little factories in Taiwan, China's next door, world events. So not just our government, but a lot of governments around the world are starting to they're starting to see the importance of semiconductors. These tiny little 
chips that have been around in the world for the for decades everything runs on them so then we have the chips act we have the chips act which has two parts there's a 52 billion dollar subsidy that the way to think about that it's to jump start the production right get get that supply chain going and then there's the second part which is at least 200 billion dollars on top of that that that's more about long-term development and making sure that it's essentially built to last for the next 50 years and 100 years so the u.s wants to be the number one producer of chips in the world jill what are you going to be watching in 2023 what's the big thing that's going to be happening I think in terms of cybersecurity, um, there's a real need for global standards or uh, compliance. Uh, the United States, to be honest, is almost behind, I would argue, especially when it comes to like digital identities and access and creating standards, partly because we have so many state regulations that contribute to how we handle those sorts of things. So I think that will be um, a big priority for the Biden administration. And while we didn't see a huge amount of cyber issues with the election for midterms, I do think disinformation is going to be something that is a focus for the next year, the next two years leading up to the election in terms of making sure false info is getting out. Ross, 20 seconds. What's the big thing for next year? Inflation. People and parts, they just cost more. It's starting to come down. But how companies and agencies navigate it alike. All right. Well, end of 2023, we're going to be asking you about those things. So thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks. Mia. Thanks. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for our email list on the homepage. We'll be back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years 
have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.